Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Earfirm Network. Vegetius. Clockwork Precision. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming to you today to talk about clockwork precision. But before we do that, we need to say welcome to our newest patron, Dennis uh, Dennis Stone, I believe. Uh, he was in uh, contact you, with me recently. Yeah, thank you, Dennis. He was in contact recently, had some mighty nice things to say to us. So thank you again for your patronage, uh, Dennis. And hopefully by the time that this episode comes out, those reward packages will have reached you all. We finally got a lift. Uh, our test came back negative. Again, it was a over precaution, but our state likes you to quarantine if there's even a chance. So we did so and... Uh, we got our negative test back, and uh, those rewards are going to be going out here shortly. We're going to be dropping off those cards for thumbs to sign tomorrow. Again, sir, I hope you've been practicing your signature. Oh, I, I sign for stuff at work all the time. I've got a very, very specific signature at this point. That's right. He's good to go. He's good to go. So those are going to be going out <laughs> soon, and hopefully by the time this comes out, you guys will have received your your rewards. So thank you again so much for supporting the show, and uh, we're going to continue coming at you. And again, we're, we're going to be expanding too. This this format that we've got going right now is definitely working for us, and we're going to continue it for the foreseeable future. But once the uh, it's safe to go back on the field, and once fighting starts up again, we're hopefully going to be uh, going over to YouTube as well, and doing more videos and live coverage of events and, and that sort of thing. So uh, please stay tuned. This is this is not the the end necessarily, but just the beginning. So, thank you to your patrons, to the patrons. We're going to be doing great things, or even greater things, in years to come. So, one of the things I wanted to talk about real quick was uh, a few episodes ago, I had mentioned that I was really pleased with a lot of aspects of Necromunda, but that it seemed a little bit buggy, a little bit glitchy, and I was going to wait for some patches to come out uh, before I really dedicated more time to it. Those patches have since come out, and the game is much more playable. There's still a few uh, little AI issues that I would I would tweak with. I'm not a I'm not a programmer. I don't even know where to begin with that stuff. But otherwise, the game. I mean, it's gorgeous in terms of just like graphics. It is a gorgeous game, um, and it's a lot of fun. I I haven't played the tabletop, but it's very similar. I would think to like a game of Kill Team. You've got your your small group of people. You're going out there, and the three gangs they have are fun to play. There's another one that's going to be coming out this next year early this next year so uh looking forward to that necromunda if you guys haven't checked it out already i i totally recommend it and then the other thing that i've been doing to keep any sort of uh practice in with uh, the war gaming is i've uh managed to coerce my wife into playing some chess against me i'm i intend all of that to be in the past tense because i don't think she was going to be playing chess against me anytime soon again <laughs> but that's all right i've got two other people in my house that i can i can squeeze a few games out of before they they say go away i've i've played chess with you before i i know what she's going through not not to brag or anything not to brag but i was you know a ranked 
uh, member of my circuit in middle school. Just, uh, you know, to, not to brag, not to humble brag or nothing, but, you know, you know, like, I might not like play chess. Like 20 years ago, you were one of the better 12-year-olds <laughs> playing chess in Missoula. Darn that's straight. A, that's some high praise there, big guy. Darn straight. That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> no, I'm not a grandmaster or anything, but I do, I do enjoy the game. <laughs> I do enjoy the game. Yeah, I mean, I... There's really not a whole lot else to talk about. Again, the snow, winter has, has, has definitely come to Montana as I've been kind of walking back and forth from my office getting ready this evening. It's gone from being like a, a light dusting to, to like a, a half an inch. This last time I went out, there was like uh, two, two uh, maybe three inches out there. And I'm sure at some point I'm going to try to leave and then I'm just going to resign myself to being in my office for the evening. So uh, I just wait for somebody to come dig me out in the morning. I've got a space heater. I'll be all right. Well, and then add to that, you know, I'm moving into my new house, which I know I've been talking about forever, but, like, by the time this episode happens, I will be in the house. Ha- like, comes out, I will be in the house. This isn't like the uh, the videos that we've been promising on the 12 shots. Like, this is actually happening. <laughs> no. I sure hope not, because our lease ends on the 4th. So you gotta be gone. Yeah, I gotta be gone. So, for me, I mean, I was talking to my dad, and he's like, oh, you doing anything on your days off? And I'm like, yeah, I'm taking a nice break from moving boxes to uh, moving a completely different set of boxes. Mm-hmm. So for this week, at least, I have, like, people are like, you doing anything bell-related? I'm like, nope. Not a, I'm wearing guard pants. That's as close as it gets right now. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, that's about the, the most that most of us are doing. I mean, again, I try to keep up with my bag drills and doing some light uh, training to you know not just for the to keep myself in shape but also just to keep my skills up and i know a lot of other people are doing that too but you're again you're you're keeping in shape hauling stuff back and forth and as we'll discover in this episode you know there's something to be said for that so and once you're in that's going to open up a whole lot of other opportunities for you again you've talked about the workshop that you've got going there you've talked about the uh, the amount of space and just and just the ability to to not have something that you're like you know I can't sit down and enjoy this crafting project or enjoy the things I love because there's actual real world things I have to tend to, you know, that's, right. that'll, that'll be nice. So I'm looking forward to it for you, sir. I'm, I'm happy for you. And, uh, yeah, uh, it won't be the next time we record, but the time after you'll be fully moved in. Right. Oh yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Well, gosh, we normally have a, a, a little bit longer of an intro section, but I, I think at this point we'd just be blowing hot air at you guys. You know what? From everyone I've talked to in the last week or so, I don't think anyone's got a whole lot going on. So I think we'll be okay here to uh, skip on. Maybe they were hoping we were more exciting. You know, maybe they were tuning in, being <laughs> like, "Well, maybe these guys were doing something exciting. We've all been doing kind of nothing, nothing at all." But you know, what are these guys up to now? We're we're not. I've been reading books again. I could I could talk to you about the books I've been reading, but I'm actually about to right now. I'm about to actually talk yeah, to no, you. Yeah, literally, that's what we're here for. So <laughs> I guess let's skip forward to that uh, for sure. Uh, so we're going to get into our first section on diligent preparation. The place that this uh, section starts off with is pretty much one of our favorite subjects on this show which is how important your non-coms are you know if if you hadn't learned it from the way that frederick stressed it you will learn from repetition from us that you know the again soldiers may fight the wars and fight the battles but the army marches on its stomach and and the non-coms are so important Uh, not just for the stomach but for literally (laughs) everything else that makes an army move and function not just in a fictional universe, but in, in the real world as well. And 
And it, yeah, it's it's absolutely important. Uh, these these non-coms and all all the different. There's all sorts of different types of non-com as well. Well, and one of the fun things is I'm learning, uh, you know, being on the the board of directors for the first time, like the first week or two of it, is that it's on every level of non-coms are doing things that you do not realize they are doing. Sure. Oh, yeah. On top of the, like, here, I made this food, eat before you pass out. Right, right. There's whole levels of administration and bureaucracy that most people just aren't even aware of. And not just that, but just uh, just in terms of leadership, in terms of, of the uh, a kind of relationships that are formed between different realms or even dis- individuals within a realm that keep things working. Like, yeah, there's a, a whole lot to it. And also in terms of material, uh, in terms of like what it takes to actually, again, make a, make a realm function or make a, an event go off. Absolutely. Absolutely. But for this section, we have uh, what was called a prefect of the workman. And remember the last time we were talking about different types of prefects and tribunes and all that and, all, and, and, and different officers of that nature. But the prefect of the workman is normally not something that most units or realms will have, like, a, a, like an actual designated one of these things. But we usually have one that's unofficial. I know that back when we were in the DGMA, we knew that we could go to either Turkey's or Thumbs's tent. Though often you guys were in the same tent, so that made that easy. Mm-hmm. But we could go to y'all's tent and... And you guys would have what we would need, whether that would be a little bit of blue foam or some tape or some uh, some cloth tape or some armor crafting supplies or, or, or anything or anything else that, that may have been brought along. It was probably to be located at that particular tent. And again, nobody hung up a sign saying, this is the prefect of the workmen, come, come check it out. But everybody just knew. My general rule is if I have, am missing something that I should have at an event, so that I'm like, I need it and I don't have it, next event, I'm going to try and make sure I have that thing. But after 17 years, that means I bring a lot of things to any event I go to anymore. Sure, sure. And 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 you also don't bring certain things as well. And I think we've mm-hmm. talked about that in the past of, like, for instance, I used to bring like two or three books because I thought for sure I would be able to find time to read during an event. And that was just simply not true. And I just, I mean, I, I still bring a book for the road, but I don't bring like a small library because I just don't have the time. Other people might, yeah. but I don't. But there's all sorts of different types of workmen. Again, we, we just touched on the idea of foamsmith or, a, or some, some sort of armorer. But Vegetius also lists joiners, masons, carpenters, smiths, of course, painters, and then your general workmen. Uh, carpenters, you wouldn't think that this would necessarily be something that would be huge in a lot of wargaming, but I know that in the SCA, for instance, they make a lot of their own tents. So having somebody around who knows a thing or two about carpentry, a good idea. There was a unit that was active within Belagarth for a while that made their own tents in this way. And I got to say, their, their tents were cozy. They had like a wool on the outside and they, they had like a nice frame and everything. They were very spacious, even though they didn't take up much space. Like it was, it was a strange kind of kind of situation but you go in there and it was so well insulated and part of that was because it had a nice sturdy frame on which to hang nice sturdy material it's kind of like the people to bring yurts 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 are cool teepees are cool um, all of which require a degree of of carpentry skill uh, furniture you know i've seen all sorts of different uh, types of chairs benches love seats that sort of thing uh that's like actual uh, somebody made it somebody brought it if, and, and I don't know about you, but at the end of the day, sitting down on a nice chair is one of the better things in the world. Yeah, there's there's a reason that the Gelf keep the, like, they have, like, a chair graveyard by the end of the week. <laughs> from the number of people that, like, just collapse into a chair and go, what? Uh, 
wrecked that. So if you can, like if you have the space for it, something a little sturdier than a camp chair, oh, it's worth its weight in gold. And those things are heavy, so that's a lot of gold. That's true. That's absolutely true. And then painters, you know, you and, and, and Turkey are often uh, being commissioned to paint anything from shields to armor to weapons. Uh, you know, those are a very important skill within within Belagarth because we love our demarcation. But also, of course, within 40k, you know, painters are some of our most respected members of the hobby. Like, not even just talking about specifically the, the game, but just the hobby itself. Uh, somebody with a, a well-painted army. I've, I've got friends who, they, that's how they paid their mortgage is because uh, he goes to tournaments and she paints armies. And between the two of them, they make enough money to pay their bills and, and live a fairly decent life. And I, that's just so cool to me. I have to say, as someone who does a lot of various crafts, because as you may have picked up over 30-odd episodes, I do a lot of various crafts. Um, miniature painters are some of the most impressive artists to me because yeah. the amount of detail that they fit into something that's like half an inch tall blows my mind it's hard i mean i've tried my hand at it at this point i've i've basically resigned myself to hiring a friend to paint my armies uh because it's it's uh, i shake a lot and uh there's just there's a lot of concentration that i have to do to get even the most minuscule amount done but i mean i appreciate it because i've tried to paint those little red eye lenses on my space marine helms and you know some of what you'll get like two in a row that you're like yeah yeah, I'm a pro painter. I can do this. And then you'll get one that looks like he's like crying out of his eyes or that he jacked up his mascara <laughs> or something. As my squires love to point out, I am very good at many things, but uh, fine detail is often not one of them. And that's what that painting is. No, it's a lot of fun. But it, I mean, especially like if I were to just like, if I were to do one model a year, like that'd be swell. But the fact that I got to sit down and be like, all right, I got 30 intercessors to get through. Ugh. Like, I actually, I don't mind actually going back and doing some of the detail painting. One of the things I'm actually going to probably have uh, somebody do for me is just paint up all of the big pieces on my Primaris army. And then I want to go through and, and put on the little little tiny details, like what rank they are, um, the little honors and that sort of thing. I kind of want to do that myself because, for one thing, the, the instructions are just going to be entirely too specific. Be like, all right, this specific model I want painted this way, and this specific model I want painted this way. And it's like, dude, there's 30 models here, and you've got a specific instruction <laughs> for each of them. There's 30 or more models here. That's going to get pricey, too. Exactly. So I think it would just be easier to be like, hey, put a base coat on, you know, paint the pauldrons and the chest paint uh, this color, and then let me do the rest. Uh, it'll at least save me that. Because, you know, for instance, both uh, Sumatai and Turkey have uh, airbrush. Mm, I don't. Yeah. And that saves so much time. On my list of expensive art craft things to pick up is one of those. Yeah, I mean they're worth it. I, 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 I they talk about them constantly. How great, how great they are. So again, like we say, uh, there's uh, the painters are are very important to this as well. Not just for uh, physical wargaming, for but for intellectual and miniature wargaming as well. And then you've got your general workmen, and these are folks that show up and just kind of help out however they can. At an event, these are your folks who are hauling garbage or setting up the field. Or uh, helping dig runners, uh, uh, runners would be under here as well. Just your, just the folk, or, or or in your uh, your local realm, people who are helping clear the field, or if there's some sort of maintenance that's required or anything like that, all that's going to fall under here. And again, most organizations aren't going to have a designated prefect of the of the workmen, but these are just kind of all the the people that fall under that category. Uh, one of the things they talk about in this section as well is. 
uh, the need to construct a winter's barracks. And while that's not so important for us, uh, the construction of weatherproof shelter absolutely is. Because it is, I've, been abs I've been at events where I've seen the full gambit of the, the weather cycle within a week. I've seen hot, muggy days and uh, cold, windy mornings and rainstorms and snowstorms all within the course of a week. So knowing how to construct a, sh a shelter out of what you have available that is going to not only keep you dry, but give a place uh, for people to like gather and keep warm is very important. Yeah, uh, for instance, uh, at one of the Ockfests, or the only Ockfests that I went to, no, wait, this wasn't Rock, uh, this would have been Ragnarok, excuse me. Um, at the Ragnarok I went to, the first couple of days, we, it was like a hurricane. I mean, we were like, there, there, like the half the camp was getting blown away every 15 minutes. Uh, it was nearly impossible to keep a fire going. Of course, nobody was out socializing because everybody was being blown sideways and was soaking wet. And so a number of our members who were more craftily and kind constructed this thing that looked like a trap door spider's nightmare above the fire. Like it was just this <laughs> series of, uh, of, of rain tarps, rain flies that they kind of put up in, in, in varying levels over one another with a hole kind of open in the center so that the smoke could still escape. But then they had like all these other levels, but it, it made this, uh, basically like a 15 by 15 area where we were able to put like a picnic table and some benches. And we had one of the drier sites on camp, uh, for those, those couple of days. And, you know, I've, I've been at events um, where that sort of thing has been happening. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'm hanging out in my tent. And if somebody comes by to hang out, that's neat. Otherwise, I'm just going to be sitting here kind of soggy and cold. So the, the, that skill made that event so much better because somebody in my unit brought that skill and was able to use it. I was going to say, anyone who's been to Thabral in April in northern Idaho mm -hmm. knows how important that weatherproof shelter is. You know, I have done the full gamut there of been wonderful and warm and overheating and woke up having thrown a bunch of stuff off with my tent really warm. And I've done this tent leaked and half of it collapsed and all of my stuff was outside in the snow and it snowed at the night. Yep. Uh, just at that one event, too. So... Uh, we, we've talked weatherproofing a lot on this show, and this is another one of, man, it's so important. And again, not just uh, for your personal gear like Thumbs is talking about, but making sure that you have some sort of public place for people to gather, uh, for you guys to be able to take meals or have meetings or, or whatever, or, or just you know sit around the campfire. It's one of the huge draws of going to an event is that kind of group experience. Yeah, the whole, the whole gamut of the Belagarth experience you need weather-appropriate stuff for all of it. Yep, 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 yep. So uh, if you don't have a prefect of the workmen on your crew, perhaps it should be you. Uh, the last thing that was in this section that we wanted to include was this idea of the traveling workshop. And again, we, we kind of touched on this before when I was talking about how thumbs and turkey feathers like to bring uh, a, a larger collection of things, everything they're going to need from knives to material in order to be able to repair and make things. And this is something that Vegetius obviously recommends as well. You want this traveling workshop for both offensive and defensive arms. So this means having foam smithing materials for shields and swords and glaives, reds, all, all those sorts of things, but also the things you're going to need for an archery kit, you know, maybe some refletching uh, or a restringing kit, armor, is the same way, like people are going to lose pins, people are going to need to thicken up pieces of leather, uh, perhaps replace pieces of leather. So having uh, maybe not a half cow, 
uh, with you, but some some extra raw a few hide. scraps and some Chicago screws, yeah. Uh, sure. I mean, I've done that for you. I've uh, Slate's done that for me. Um, I like to think of it as, you know how in like every sword movie, there's a spot where they're marking, like marching through the camp, and there's one guy in the back swinging a like black uh, blacksmith hammer. Yeah. I I just imagine I'm that dude. <laughs> it's not a bad person to be. Uh, it's one of the more popular people in camp, much like the cook. Uh, we love the cook and we love the smith. <laughs> Those are two people we love on this show. The person who feeds you and the person that makes sure your armor is going to work when arrows are coming at it. Yep. Yep. Two pretty important people. But yeah, this all kind of falls under the this diligence of the prefect of the workman. Because again, as we've we've mentioned before, the, the fighting, while it's kind of what brings us to what we do and and is the the main draw for a lot of people there is so much that goes on behind the scenes in order to make that happen so uh, just make sure that you're thinking about what your contribution to that might be so our next section is on demarcation and this is an important we've kind of touched on this before but we wanted to do a little bit more specific because you know Vegetius goes over again so we figured if he's going over it then we probably should too and he kind of goes specific and the idea here is that the demarcation is for your troops. This is to make sure that when you are looking at somebody else on the same team, that you know who you're dealing with. It was very useful in the army, for instance, to be able to walk up to somebody, and if you hadn't met them before, you look at the rank on their chest, they look at the rank on your chest, and within then that, that quick glance, you know who's in charge. There doesn't have to be this, this uh, well, I'm in charge because, of, oh no, I'm in charge. Or, nope, you just, I'm a, I'm a private, you're a lieutenant, which means you're in charge. I may be older than you, taller than you, bigger than you, doesn't matter. I, you are in charge. So that, that is one of the, the things there, but it's also a different way of being able to denote uh, the different officers and uh, honors that we had talked about in our last episode. So this is done through special numbers, colors, and sometimes crests, especially if you're dealing with like the Roman legion, to distinguish. And while this is done in Belagarth, in, in, in some units, again, Thumbs and I, from personal experience, aren't going to really be able to talk about this because for the Dark Angels, you get one colored um, Omega when you're, on, when you're a, a recruit, and then you get another colored Omega when you're in. And, and that's that. Yeah, the, the Gelf have the snake, and then if you're full member, you're the snake with the sword. You and I both joined the most like anti-authoritarian units ever for people who are doing an entire podcast about like military precision and order you know and it's only because you know i i i like my weekends to be fairly lax in many ways i, <laughs> and, I and, and i'll admit to being somewhat lazy in that way like there are absolutely events that i go to that i wish that my unit was more oorah but the majority of the time i really enjoy the fact that it's kind of go with the flow kind of energy and i dig that but but also there was a time in my life where I was into more of a more rigid structure, and I was a part of those units at that time. So, mm-hmm. no, it, it worked different things for different folks. But this is also extremely useful for obviously 40k. When you're looking at, for instance, like we were talking about last episode, the Space Marines, they've got all sorts of different colors and crests and numbers to denote what squad you're in, what your rank is within the overall structure, uh, and then like the different colored crests to maybe distinguish if you are in charge, uh, uh, which company are you in charge of. These are all things that are going to be distinguished in that way. And so as a 40k player, if you really want to get into that detail, and I know some people who are like, nope, I'm just going to put my three colors on my Marines to make them legal. And that's it. That's good. Uh, and, and that's fine. Like if that's, if that's where you're at, that's awesome. But if you're a person that likes more detail, uh, that, that kind of thing, it adds a lot of flavor. I love looking at an army where you can like individually distinguish each model. I think that's really cool. 
Not that I necessarily have the skill for it, but I th- do think it's very cool. It's a sign of how ubiquitous this is to 40k and the Space Marines that I was reading this section, and the first thing I thought, as someone who does not play 40k, was, oh yeah, like how the Space Marines have like the red helmets sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Still exactly. don't know what it means, but I know it does a thing. You know it's special. You know it's a special demarcation of some sort, and that's and then again, that's kind of what it's supposed to do, and and uh, and different units, different uh, realms, different groups within 40k, Belagarth, Dagger here, whatever, are going to have their own things. And some of them are going to be an anathema to anybody not looking in. Again, like the, the ranking structure for the Urukai is going to be fairly obvious if you watch long enough. Like, if you watch long enough, you'll be like, okay, the people with the triangles on their shields seem to be in charge, but the people in charge of them have this on their shields, and you have a few people with crests, like actual, like, horsehair crests, and they appear to be calling the shots. So... Just looking at like the Urukai, for instance, you can kind of denote their their general ranking structure. The Horde have a ranking structure as well, and they know what it is. They can figure out what the different things mean within their myriad of of symbols. But somebody looking in is probably not going to be able to distinguish that order, and that's partially by design. You and I have been hanging out with Horde for about a decade now, off and on, and uh, I still can't tell you how it works. I was still convinced that witch doctors were a member of Horde up until a few episodes ago. So, I mean... <laughs> uh, good job, Horde, on your operational se- uh, security. Yeah. Yeah, oper- yeah. Good job, Horde. I wouldn't have thought that that, uh, that would be a thing that we would apply to you guys as much. But, you know, that's, that's <laughs> me and, uh, and my bias that's catching up with me. And that, well, that would be me dead, I guess. Whoops. On a much smaller scale, Stygia uh, does, I'll make people belt flags with the Stygian Lotus when they've gone to an event. And it, I mean, one, and I've talked about it elsewhere, works as a way of being like, you're one of us now. But it also makes it very obvious when you're going to your first event to Stygia, you see that. And even if you don't necessarily know the person, you're like, oh, connection. Okay. I know I can go talk to them. So similar idea, way less organized. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, but it all helps. It all helps. Anything you can do to help add some organization to the relative chaos that is uh, the field always helps. And we've talked before about unit and realm iconography. That's uh, the next point that's kind of on our, our to-do list is the idea of this unit and realm iconography. Usually there's a... Uh, and, and different uh, places have different rules for it too. You know, you might uh, you might be able to... You might be able to alter it in some units. I know other units are very rigid about the way that they go about. Like if, if that's the symbol, that's the symbol and it has to be that way every time it's applied or at least as close to it as you can make it. Whereas other units, once you get to a certain rank, you can kind of individualize it more, but it still kind of has to be recognizable. You know, it can't be altered to such an extent that it's, it's like, okay, I don't, even, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore because that would defeat the purpose. You know, I've seen a, a lot of different, for instance, like colors. We do a lot of different different colors for the lotus. It's not just always black and white, but sometimes there'll be, you know, blue and red or green and, and white or, or whatever the case. Like, add, put two colors together, and I've seen those probably together. But that doesn't mean that you can still recognize it. You still know that's, that's the Stygian yeah. lotus there. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that iconography still needs to be distinguishable uh, for those reasons. And then uh, the last thing in demarcation is personal iconography. And this can be a, a lot of different things. For Thumbs or I, this could be our knight or warmaster symbols, respectively, or house symbols. Of course, you're going to have any uh, personal symbols you may have earned through your unit or your realm. 
on there. Yeah, I've got a symbol I made for the Great Hunt. Uh, yep. For my own personal Great Hunt journey that I use all the time. Yep, I use mine too. Uh, so there's there's a lot of different things that can go into this personal iconography. You can use your words. Like I know that that, that, that seems like the extra nerd step, but um, I didn't actually intend to have words, but I ended up kind of, they ended up on my shield because I'd had these words on my shield for so long. I'd read this comic forever ago called Transmetropolitan. And in Transmetropolitan, when the riot police come out, they have uh, the words submit now on their shields and then a big happy smiley face. And I thought that was the, the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I wanted to put that on my shield. And so I, I my, the first time I did it, it did not look good. I'm going to put that out there. It was basically like a, uh, like the smiley face you'd put on, on just like a test or something like that, like a very simple little smiley face and then scrawled on there, submit now. And that shield worked for a long time. And then thumbs made me a, a really nice one that I, that I was like, okay, well, I, I guess this is kind of my thing now. I, I, I had that as just kind of that shield, but this has become kind of iconic. And then when I had my heater done up and I put a bunch of other symbols on there, for instance, my war master symbol and uh, realm symbol, unit symbol, all that, I was looking at the bottom and I was like, you know, I, I need to have those words on there. So they, they, they kind of became my words. My words are submit now. I have helped you put the submit now and the smiley face on like six different shields over the years. It's true. It's true. And and it just kind of stuck. So uh, th th it doesn't necessarily need to be something you choose. You could choose your own words. You know, obviously there's, I, I, I know of houses who have uh, put a lot of thought into what their words are, but much like my name, it just seems to have been a couple of syllables that I slammed together and decided were mine. It works. Uh, one thing you attempt, and I've mentioned that you tend to accumulate titles over the years if you play this game long enough, mm -hmm. from serious to doofy. You definitely accumulate symbols at the same time. I've been making myself banners for, I mean, demarcation, but for my uh, camping space as opposed to being on field and stuff. Sure. And realizing the number of symbols that I was going to put on these if I was going to do one that would like cover it properly and i'm like man i have so many at this point but like you say uh, it, it, it's kind of one of those things that you just acquire as you go along because different things have meaning to you you'll have an experience at a at a, an event for instance and maybe a, a particular symbol will stand out at you as as representative of that symbol and nobody else necessarily has to know what it means but it's meaningful to you so it uh, it definitely matters it's why I like personal iconography, because it kind of becomes a biography of your Belagarth experience. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I know you and I kind of have a similar theory on tattoos as well. We kind of have a lot of tattoos, and, and we both kind of, uh, the philosophy is we put our, you know, our ideas or the lessons we've learned or the life we've led in, in the form of tattoos. So, you know, this isn't something that's just a Belagarth thing. It, it happens all over life. Yeah, people would be like, what does that tattoo mean? I'm like, well... It kind of sums up being 18 in a nutshell, but it's also a rocket ship, so, you know. You kind of had to be there, man. <laughs> I know, it is the most bougie thing to say, but... Yeah, so that's that's the demarcation stuff. Again, you've got the, the special numbers, colors, and crests, and, and, and those sorts of things that distinguish within the unit itself. And then, of course, the unit realm iconography and personal iconography that you might uh, put on various items of... Uh, garb, gear, your person, whatever you like. 
So the last thing we want to do for this diligent preparation, again, knowing knowing who's who and knowing how things are getting there and who's doing what, this is all all very fine and dandy, but the, the last thing that comes with this idea of diligent preparation is, of course, drilling the troops. We've been going over this last couple of chapters, and of course, Vigedius wasn't going to let us get off with one last little synopsis. So we're not going to go into nearly as much detail into these as we have in, in previous episodes. There's a couple of these that are somewhat new, so we're going to talk about those. Uh, but the rest, we're just going to kind of uh, buzz over and make sure that, uh, again, they're defined, they're good to go. But again, they don't, they don't need that detail. Uh, you don't need to talk about Armatura for a half an hour. If you could sum up this book in one word, it's drill. Yeah, drill. Drill, drill, drill. Or at least, yeah, this, uh, the, the, the second book of the overall book has absolutely been very drill heavy. So this first part, I, um, any drills should impart one or more of the following. Agility of the body, combat skill, and group movement discipline. So any drill that you're doing, any exercise you're doing specifically for fighting needs to kind of focus on one of those things, one or more of those things. Again, if you're doing a, a drill like what I was talking about a few episodes ago, where I roll the dice, get my combo for my 12 shots, sprint at my Pell, and then deliver that as quickly as I can in, in like a battlefield fashion, I'm getting not just agility of the body, but combat skill from that. So that's a twofer. You know, you always like when you can find a twofer. Yeah, that that means there's one less drill you have to do because you've already covered everything. The, all the drills that are effective have not been discovered yet. There's probably uh, another way of doing things that we haven't talked about on the show or that we haven't even heard about that is effective for, for doing one thing or another. So don't think that just because you haven't heard of a drill that will work you in a certain way that it doesn't exist because you might be the person to come up with it. You know, you might be the person we're talking about in a few episodes saying, hey, uh, so-and-so came up with this drill. We love it. And we want you all to hear they about it. They changed the game, man. Yeah. So, like, again, while what we're talking about and while what the ancients talked about was absolutely good and should be taken into account, that's not to say that what it might you might be thinking of uh, might not be just as effective, if not better. So, uh, but th that's what the sh drill should be focusing on. And new recruits should be training twice a day. And this is for two reasons. One, it's because they're young and they can take it. And when, when you're young and you've got that endurance, like I've been watching American Ninja Warrior recently and like the older oh ninjas, God, so much. They're, they're, the older ninjas are good. Of course, they've got the skill, they've got the patience, they've got the, the know-how, the experience on the course. You, you know, you, you never see them rushing. You never see them looking nervous because they're pros at this. But every single episode, there's at least one dude who's like 19 or 20 they're like, I got into this six months ago. And they just go bounding like a jackalope through the course because they just have that, that youthful vitality. And with a little bit of training, they were able to accomplish a lot. So absolutely, if you are young and you are a new recruit, use it. <laughs> Make sure that you're, you're getting that in there. Okay, so this is only sort of related. But uh, if you've never seen the YouTube video of the like 73-year-old man doing the Ninja Warrior course and completing yeah. it... Do yourself a favor and go watch that right now. Because, oh my god. But, that, I mean, that kind of fits into veterans should drill once a day, which is our right. next one. Yep, So, and he recommends that vets do drill once a day. And so, the other reason that, that noobs are only drilling, or are drilling twice a day is for muscle memory. Because, again, yeah. the, the, the drill that he's talking about is also very focused on making sure that you're practicing your combat skills. Vets don't need that so much. You know? Uh, again, we've got the, no, muscle we have memory. the muscle memory. 
Right. We I, like we got to keep it fresh. You want to make sure that you're learning new things. You want to make sure you're keeping your skills up to date. But in the same token, we're not trying to learn at as fast a rate. Also, vets tend to be older, which means that our bodies are already starting to break down a little bit. So that training twice a day is going to cut into our our endurance rather than bolster it. Now, we should take a moment to say here, we recognize that what he's talking about is uh, hired professional soldiers. This was their career, while unless you're someone that I've never heard of, foam fighting or whatever sport is probably your hobby. So we recognize that you might not be able to do sword drills twice a day, but it doesn't have to just be like with your sword is training, you know, uh, all, all sorts of things could be trained. Even just like going for a jog, constitutes the kind of training or drilling that we're talking about here for sure for sure uh anything that kind of gets you up and moving uh gets you up and 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 doing stuff and obviously lifestyle is going to play into this as well and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on but somebody who is a welder or a construction worker for instance uh what is going to be required from them for their from their drill every day is going to be far less than somebody who sits behind a computer because a person who is who's who's already working their body doesn't necessarily need to put in that much more effort. Still, I mean, obviously, unless your job is to swing a stick, you still probably want to pick up a sword and practice your shots because, you know, not not a lot else in life is going to help you specifically do those things. But uh, there's a lot of other ways to drill that aren't necessarily going and work in the bag. So, God, I would love it if I could pick up stick twice a day. That sounds so good. Wouldn't that be nice? I think we're both in the veteran category at this point. Like once a day probably sounds all right to us. Yeah, and then take a nap. I get you. Yeah, I could deal with a nap. Uh, <laughs> and so again, we, we want to go over again this uh, the idea of the post exercise. So a post can be anything. It can be a punching bag. It can be a, the corner of a couch. It can be a, a, a couch you don't like, preferably. Yeah. It can be an actual post, an actual pal that's been put into the ground or, or something along those lines. Uh, but the important thing here is that you're using gear that is twice the weight. Uh, again, you're practicing at this this post with a sword and a javelin, and you're using these weapons that are twice the weight of what you're going to be using on the field. So if you're going to be doing this in the SCA, of course your gear is going to weigh a little bit differently than it will in Ampguard or Belagarth or Dagger here or Darkon or any of those things. So whatever the normal gear weight is for your activity, go about twice that weight, practice there on the post, and it helps build up strength and stamina. And they say here sword and javelin, but really what they mean is the gear that you would be using in a fight. Right. So right. if, you know, I mean, if you don't use a javelin, practicing with a javelin, I mean, it'll make you better at a javelin, but it won't really advance uh, in the same way that, you know, if you're usually fighting in armor, make sure you're practicing some of this in armor. Yes. If you're just doing it in, you know, gym shorts, trust me, I've made this mistake. It is a wildly different experience. It is. It is. So yeah, uh, uh, fight for the, the fight that you want and, and make sure that the weight is going to be realistic. And I, and I know I, I've talked about in the past making sure that your garb is that way too, that you're not tripping over your garb when you get on the field because you didn't anticipate the long flowing sleeves getting in your way. Uh, a good place to learn that is on the post. Such a specific example right there. Yeah, it's like I haven't done that before or something. <laughs> not never. Um, not but never. Yeah. But yeah, like Thumbs was saying, the reason that he keeps uh, drilling uh, this, uh, this idea of the sword and javelin is because those are the weapons the Romans were going to be using most often on the field. So that's obviously where their focus was going to be. But if you're a flail person and you use a, f a flail most of the time, you're still going to get some something out of practicing with a sword, but you're going to want to practice with your primary weapon. 
And when you can drill, it doesn't just mean single blue. It could mean a spear. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's 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 a good point, too. It could mean a spear. It can mean a, a larger, uh, like a claymore or something along those lines, too. So uh, make sure that you're, you've got something that's that's kind of up your alley. Archers and slingers are not off the hook here either. There's there's a way for them to do this kind of practice as well, and that's in the form of target practice. And for this target, you know, Vegetius recommends that you set up a straw mannequin at about fifth or about five hundred paces. Uh, we're not uh, shooting at those ranges. Uh, we would recommend usually um, somewhere around three different distances: a, a close distance, probably your minimal shooting distance, a medium distance, and then probably the first the furthest that you're going to be looking at on the field that you're going to be on. And, and this is this is good for a number of reasons. Obviously, you're, you're trying to obviously get your, your targeting down at different distances. But it also, if in the case of an archer, will help you account for the drop of the arrow. Because unlike uh, in normal archery, where uh, an arrow drops at a fairly, uh, like at that 9.8 meters per second, within a Belagarth, because the arrow is front heavy, it it's, when it starts to drag, it behaves differently in flight than a normal arrow does. And you're not going to notice that difference in behavior unless you're practicing it at different distances. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even normal, I say normal archers, you know, non-bell archers, hunters, for example, uh, my, my in-laws are all hunters. They practice this exact same thing. They practice, you know, shooting close or shooting far. They'll practice shooting lying down even, because that might mm -hmm. be where they are when an elk walks by. They practice uh, something that comes up less often, but still for us, of at different heights. You know, shooting from the ground versus shooting up in a tree stand. So, well, uh, where I live, there is a, you know, big metal tower that I go stand up on and occasionally shoot down from. Uh, so... You really can test it from any angle. Yep. And while that may not sound like something that is any way familiar to us on the West Coast, because I, I don't think I've ever seen an archer tower on the West Coast. No, a hill is the closest I've ever seen. Uh, in, in the Southeast, I know that they have the East Wind site, which has those permanent archer towers built into it. So if that's a place you're going to be going to, practicing shooting from a, a downward angle is not a bad idea either. Um, if it's something that you're going to be seeing for us, not so much because we don't typically see that that kind of uh, setup. But it's not a bad idea to have that in your in your toolbox, anyways. Also, if nothing else, I'm just going to admit it: shooting an arrow, a bow and arrow, off of a roof is really fun. Oh, it's very satisfying. It's really fun, and you should try it if you get the chance. That's very true. That's very true. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to do this uh, for archers, but those are the big ones. You're you're trying to be at different distances, different angles right? Not just up and down, but also side to side. Uh, and you can do this with uh, the sling as well. Again, in Belagarth, we don't have a, a proper sling. You can throw rocks at people, which is what I uh, made a name for myself doing there for a little bit. But one of the ways I was able to do that was I would set up a pillow, like a couch pillow, on uh, the, the edge of the couch, about the height of a person's head. And I would practice throwing my rock at it from different angles, you know, from, from up top, from down low, from, and it, from over from the left, from over from the right. Uh, quickly, slowly, all these different ways so that when I got onto the field, it was just a matter of reaching into my bag and throwing it. I didn't have to think about it. It just went where I wanted it to go. And then I had to go and get gloves and my rock game has never been the same since because, you know, the gloves jack with the, the flight trajectory. Uh, I need to, I need to practice again is what I need to do. I need to put my money where my mouth is and just spend a day throwing rocks around my, my living room. Well, and you talked about how arrows can change trajectory 
trajectory really fast. Uh, rocks are even worse about that, in my opinion. Because oh yeah, if there's if any wind at all, different shapes at all, or yeah, wind. You know, a rock that is like made from a foam ball is entirely different from a rock that is just like two random scraps of cloth sewn together with whatever stuffed inside that you can find. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, and that's, that's funny you bring that up because I did have a rock that I called my favorite rock and it was because when I threw it and if I, if I got my grip correctly on it and I threw it at the, at the same way every time, it would cur curve ever so slightly to the right. So if I timed it correctly, I could get it to go around people's shields occasionally. And that was really, really cool to nail somebody in the head when they were blocking you and for them to be like, what? And it was like, yeah, I got it right around there. And yeah, the, the shape of the rock definitely helped. I remember that rock. It made me very angry. So yeah, that's a perfect rock right there. I loved my boomer rock. <laughs> so yeah, uh, these are all things that need to be practiced, though. I wouldn't have known that about that rock if I hadn't practiced with it so much. Uh, so that's one of the, the, the perks that you get to, to that constant practice. So obviously all this drill is well and good and it's, it's fantastic as long as the weather holds out. And if you live someplace like Texas or Florida or gosh, I'm trying to think of other places that, uh, that our listeners might be from that, that don't get a winter. Um, <laughs> you, you can practice all winter California. long, I guess is my point. Yeah. California. Uh, but for the rest Southern, of us, either in the, in the Southern or the Northern hemisphere, we have to deal with a fairly... It depends on where you are, but for us here in Montana, it's a fairly intense winter season and you don't want to be out there practicing in it for the very various reasons we've mentioned. So what happens? The, the drill has to continue into the winter. Otherwise you get this, this massive off season in which you get kind of sloppy. Well, there's a couple of different options available to us in the modern age that were not av available to Vegetius. And of course, a garage is a wonderful thing. If you have a, a two car garage that has a decent height to it, that works if it's insulated. Like you definitely want that to be insulated and you probably want four or five heaters out there because under 50 degrees, like we've said, foam starts to kind of stiffen and that's when the injuries start to occur. That's when you start to see your jams, your, uh, your brakes, your sprains, your sprains. Uh, and what's dangerous about this is because you're moving, you're warming yourself up. So you don't necessarily realize how like actually cold it is right. while your foam is freezing more and more and more. Because you're, you're, the, the foam, unlike you, does not have blood vessels carrying warm blood through it. It stays cold. Yeah. You're, the, the foam isn't sweating being like, man, it's nice out here while there's like three feet of snow. Trust <laughs> us, we've learned this the hard way. We have. We have. So yeah, that's a great way. We've got a garage with some heaters in it is a, is a good way to practice in the winter. A gym, if you can find a gym space on either a campus or, or a, if you've got a, a private gym where you can rent out a room, this works great as well. Um, anything that gets you away from the elements and into a, a temperature controlled area where you can still practice and it's, it's healthy for you and it's still going to be safe uh, is, is the big, and it doesn't wear on your gear as much either. When that foam stiffens up, it's more likely to break as well. So it also saves you on your gear. The last thing in this drilling the troops, and then we promise we're done for this book is, uh, these other things that one can do in order to. Uh, kind of count as drill because like we had said it's not just the armatura it's not just the the post drills but there's other things that can contribute to to having this uh this preparation to, to having a strongness of body and the, this list that we've got here is cutting wood carrying burdens passing ditches swimming marching full step and running with arms we've both had experience with this cutting wood oh yeah 
Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, we both did Conservation Corps, and I learned really quickly when I was, I don't know, chopping away some tree that I'm like, man, this uses all of the muscles that I need for a red, and it's teaching me, I, at first I was like, this is teaching me good technique, and parts of it was. But be careful with this. If you ever are like, oh, I'm chopping wood because this is a great exercise, do it. But then I went out onto the field and I went to like swing a red and my body went, oh, I'm chopping wood now. And I just blasted poor Oni in the face. Like first thing. So again, for those of you who are, who are just tuning in, uh, a, a red is a very large sword. It's, it's over 48 oh, yes, inches tall. Uh, you know, about the size of the mall I'd been using. And I was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. My brain, like, body took over there. And he's like, no, it's fine, dude. That was, like, very well done, other than the face. And then we set up for a second battle, and I did it again. I was like, nope, can't be trusted with this. <laughs> just just put it down, take it away from me. Yeah, that, that 12 o'clock position is definitely... Because, like we say, it works everything. It works the shoulders, it works the arms, it works the grip, it works the core. Uh, but uh, it works it too well sometimes. Yeah, so cutting wood is really is one of the best practices that you can do. Plus, you get more wood for a fire, so it works for everybody. But do not fight like you're cutting wood. Right, right. I, I, I mean, again, we've we've stressed the idea that you should probably eliminate that 12 o'clock shot from your repertoire anyways, uh, and especially if you've been cutting wood, because that, that shot will get some stank to it at that point. <laughs> I felt so bad. But you caught yourself. You caught yourself. That's that's what you, that's, that's all you can do. Carrying burdens. This is also uh, this is what Thumbs does all day, every day, is uh, lifting the boxes, carrying the boxes back and forth. And then recently, he's been getting off work and doing that some more. So he's definitely getting his PT in. Yeah, I have not been doing good on workouts, but that's because you know I just have been carrying a shelf, which close enough. For true. But yeah, so carrying burdens can be can be anything. It can be a backpack. Again, when we were in the in the MCC, we were carrying uh, heavy loads back and forth constantly, and so that was great workout. Uh, you can do this just your own self. Find a hill nearby, load up a backpack with some some books or some clothes or whatever the case may be, and just go for a walk as far as you can go. And it, it really helps build up your your ability to bear that weight. Uh, hiking in armor—that's something that we've also mentioned mm -hmm. before—is the carrying burdens idea. Again, it's, it's a rare day that you're going to go for a six-mile hike in your armor on the field, but the fact that you're prepared for it is awesome. Yeah, if you can do that, you know, getting across the field once or twice will hold no fears for you. Correct. Same thing with passing ditches. We don't get many ditches on our fields. Uh, a lot of the times we go for things that are a lot more like soccer fields, nice and flat, not going to twist an ankle or, or, or hurt yourself. But back in the when, when people were digging trenches all over the place, passing ditches was definitely something you needed to do. And it's, it's still a great workout now. It gets your balance and control, some muscle buildup in your, in your calves and in your um, ankles. Practices some footwork a little bit practice that footwork so passing ditches is it can still absolutely work it's not going to be as directly useful for what we do but it's not going to hinder you in any way swimming uh, again we're not going to be doing a whole lot of swimming on the field or with our gear necessarily because we're trying to keep it fairly pristine that being said engaging in swimming is a really good way to train the body not just cardio and aerobics but it, it tones the core it, it absolutely makes you stronger and Vegetius recommends doing this in different bodies of water. So if you live near an ocean or a lake or a river and also have a pool in your, in your town, 
then going to a, a wild body of water and kind of training against a current is different and works different muscles than going to a pool is going to. So if you've got options, use those different options. Chaos Wars used to be right next to a river and on the uh, like lunch break, everyone would go to the river and hang out in the river and kind of bathe and stuff. And there was this heavy current part. And I remember sitting there and I was like, man, like everyone's fighting really well. Like this will be great. But like, and then I watched someone swim up that heavy current while I was talking that. And I was like, okay, so him on the field, I'm going to avoid if I can. That was Samson. I remember. Yep. I was right. there with that was Samson. That was... <laughs> uh, to, to give you a little bit of reference, those of you who are listening at home, Samson's a Navy SEAL. <laughs> There's a reason Samson was able to do that. And, and Samson swung his uh, glaive like a Navy SEAL. He was one of those guys that like, every now and then you feel bad because... Somebody is not hitting you hard enough with a red in order for it to count as like a, a shield-breaking hit. And, and you feel bad. You never had to feel bad against Samson because he was always hitting you with enough force to like throw you back five feet. And so you were, you were normally trying to catch your breath. And that's the only reason that you wouldn't say good to the shot is because you're sitting there wheezing from, the <laughs> from punching yourself in the diaphragm. I'm not going to lie. Samson hit me once at Chaos Wars 15 and I have been scared of him ever since. He's, he's muscle on muscle with muscles to boot. Your Warmaster's favorite story of me is watching me get hit by Samson in the stomach with a red and going, oh, he's going to throw up. <laughs> oh, he didn't throw up. Good job, Thumbs. You're doing great. Like, that was... <laughs> yeah, this, this, guy, uh, this guy's the, the real deal. So, um, and, I, and, and part of his workout, part of the, the reason he's so strong is because he swims all the time. So, yeah, there's something to it. Marching full step. Uh, and most of us aren't going to be out there actually like marching, singing cadence, unfortunately, because it's a lot of fun and I, I wish more people did it. <laughs> like a neighborhood cadence group would be great. You have the weirdest idea of friend of fun. I'm just saying, it'd be a lot of fun. I, I, I'd get, <laughs> I could dig it. But more likely, this is going to be your jogging, your, your running, going for a nice quick walk. Uh, anything that's getting you up and moving is going to kind of fall into this marching full step. If you can do it in full gear, that's awesome. Uh, I know my own self, I can be somewhat self-conscious about marching around my neighborhood in my armor, if only because all, like, all of my neighbors have kids and I don't want them thinking that some crazy person lives here. Like, you know, there's already enough things that kind of point toward that direction. Me marching around the neighborhood in full gear with my sword um, might be just the thing that, that, that puts it over. I'm going to get white p people in white coats on my front lawn the next day, I'm fairly certain. I was going to say, you live in the suburbs and I live in the middle of nowhere. So, like, we have similar issues there. If people see us there and we're like, um, I don't know how to explain this one to you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, again, like, if I, when, I, when I, it's different when I went hiking for whatever reason. Like, you'd see people on the trail, but uh, you only see them for five seconds. You don't have to live next to them, you know? Well, yeah, and they had 20-pound weighted shirts, too, so they really couldn't throw too many stones about weird life choices. That's, that's true. That's very true. But yeah, marching full step gets you in the practice of doing it because you're going to need to move quick on the field. And this last one is the same way, running with arms. And Vegetius recommends not just running like with arms on, so like running with your armor and your shield and your, and your sword the way that you want them, but also running like carrying those things uh, because it's going to throw the weight differently and it's going to get you used to that weight in a different way. And you do want to practice this because I have absolutely more than once seen somebody in a, f in a fresh suit of armor, first time they're wearing it, out on the field, go to sprint to take advantage of some tactical opportunity and just biff, just, just eat dirt for a good five yards, you know, because 
Yeah. Yeah, you get some momentum building up, and armor is typically top-heavy, and if you're not used to being top-heavy like that, and dudes were already top-heavy, so you add more top-heavy on, on top of that, and, uh, yeah, you might be going for a it spill. It only goes downhill from there. Yeah, uh, on the same measure, give someone a backpack shield and a spear, or just any kind of polearm for the first time, and watch them suddenly have to move and, like, completely relearn how running works, basically. Yeah. Well, especially like what you're saying with a spear too, like, uh, you don't think about it until you're moving, but like, how do you hold the spear when you're running? Like, uh, and, and it's going to be different for different situations and for different lengths of spear. Like if I'm trying to move quickly through people and, uh, and, and like get someplace, I'm going to be kind of holding that spear beside my body, kind of perpendicular to my body, just kind of swaying back and forth. Whereas if I'm uh, running to get into the fight immediately, it might be more in front of my body, right? Uh, behind the body you will trip over your spear at least once so don't feel oh, yes. bad but training with it might make it less common and less severe when it does mm -hmm. happen so yeah that's uh that's that the our first section i think this has been diligent preparation did you uh, have anything else you wanted to add here thumbs nope i think we can jump forward to section two flawless execution Now, we recognize that uh, in this next section, when we're talking about uh, a very specific tactic involving the way that the Romans draw up into their legion, into their, into their line of battle, that most people who practice physical wargaming are not going to have this kind of structure to their line. And nor should they. We don't have the numbers to do it. Uh, and 40k is often too fluid of a battlefield in order to really reinforce these standards. Remember that the Romans didn't have to deal with bolters or goss weaponry. So their tactics were going to be slightly different. That being said, the idea is still absolutely sound and can be applied to, to what we're doing. In fact, you know, both Thumbs and I have been sitting here after we read this and we're like, you know, this is, this is a drill we should probably run once, uh, once the field gets back together. Like, yeah. this is I had good. been having the thought of, like, this is not quite how, I've never quite done this setup before, but I can see how it would be really effective. And it's not wildly different from a lot of things that we have recommended people do before. Just it uh, sets them up in a slightly different way. Correct. Correct. So without further ado, we're going to kind of get into this real quick. When you're drawing up at first, it's a fairly similar thing to what we saw recommended by both by all the other authors that we've covered so far, which is you've got your cavalry assembled on the wings where they're going to be uh, at most... Uh, range to be able to do what they can. And so for us, again, cavalry are your fastest, uh, your most fleetest of foot people. They are going to be out there on the wings. Yeah, you're not going to put your flankers in the center. No, no, that'd be that'd be strange. I've seen some bizarre chess setups, but but uh, that just doesn't work all that well. It, it does not work. So, and then the infantry are forming that center line. Remember in the last episode, we, we talked about how when the Romans were marching into battle, you had your, your various... Uh, sections one two three four five six seven eight nine ten marching in a row and then when they'd get to where they were going or in a column excuse me and then when they'd get to where they were going they would split between five and six uh one would take a nice hard right and then you'd end up with your line uh from right to left one two three four five and then behind it another line six seven eight nine ten so within these lines once they're facing the enemy they have a composition uh a kind of an idea behind the way that they're supposed to be ordered and that first line is going to be your heavy infantry. And they need to be armed with helm, greaves, 
cuirass, so like a, a chest piece of some sort, and a large shield. You'll notice that the Romans do not include any sort of uh, arm armor in here. That's not That wasn't very important to them. And, and one of the big reasons for this was the size of their shield. They could really fit their entire person behind their shield. And when they were stabbing out, they didn't expose much of their arm when doing so. So they uh, having uh, bracers was kind of a hindrance to a, to a Roman. For us, depending on how big your shield is and what kind of coverage it gives you, bracers might also be something to add to this if you want to consider yourself heavy infantry. Honestly, for our scale of fighting, I think bracers is one of the most valuable things you can have. Yeah. For for us, I actually feel like arms and legs are more important to protect than curious if you're going to drop something off. That's a personal thing for me as someone who doesn't tank it nearly as heavily. But we have to remember, the Roman combat style evolved out of the phalanx which was True. all about like a big line of shields so they're coming at it from a completely different angle than most Belagarth fighting not does. to mention that uh, they were also doing this for real and we're doing this yeah. uh for for not real and if we do take a torso shot you know we can get up and do it again whereas if a roman took yeah. a torso shot he's bleeding out and is not in as nearly good a position if i was actually going to die the breastplate is the one to skip would not be my advice but for us <laughs> it's how i tend to roll and see, I, I actually tend to do the Roman thing where I, I will often, I, I don't like having bracers. And maybe it's just because I haven't had the right bracers, but I don't like having that restriction on my arms. It makes me feel like I can't throw my shots the same way that I would want to. So I, I actually kind of agree with this, but I also tend to use either large shields or because I'm because we're left-handed, we also have a little bit different angle when we're approaching our opponent as well. This is the nice thing about being an armor maker. I can shape it to myself, but that that's is good point. unrelated to this. You are an armor maker. I got to hit you about bracers sometimes. That's, that's, well, that needs to be something. Pandemic, man. Yeah, yeah, there is that. Um, so yeah, you've got your helm, and uh, the helm is another really important part of this. If you're going to be in the front line, you definitely want a helm because I tell you, as an archer. After I'm done hunting other archers and looking around for pole arms to shoot, the next thing I look for is shield people who are not wearing a helm because I'm mm -hmm. going to shoot you in the head. <laughs> I absolutely will. And it's, it's because they're right there. They're the closest person to you. They're the often more distracted. Again, if you're a, a frontline heavy infantry person, you're likely going to be distracted. So the last thing you want to worry about is an arrow to the face. Anytime I don't wear my helm to an event, I regret it. I'm going to be real honest with you. Uh, me too. I, I wear I wear it to practice every single time, even if it we're just doing single like a, like a single sword, like a small single sword warm up. I will still wear my helm, mostly just because I just don't like getting hit in the head. I, you know, I yeah. I went in and got an MRI scan earlier this year, and they told me I had no brain damage. And that was I was I looked at them and I was like, that's honestly surprising to me. The number of car wrecks and I've been in, and the number of times I've gotten just drilled in the head with a great sword. Does not have brain damage. That's a, a kind of a miracle. That's you made me good. a believer. <laughs> well, and it also connects to last section's running with arms. Uh, fighting with a helm on is very different from not fighting with or from fighting without a helm on. Yeah, in terms of like uh, your your sight being restricted and all that, for sure. And it's so much hotter, and people might not be able to hear you as well. That's a problem we had a lot when I first started wearing a helm. You might not be able to hear them as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. We had to, like, drill holes into your helm so you could hear mm -hmm. people again. So you want to know this before the show. Yep, absolutely. Uh, these are these are all things you want to know before you're out there and, and uh, having to test it for real. 
So that, that's the kind of accoutrement that you want to have if you're in the front line. Uh, in terms of armament, uh, you're looking at like a long sword or something of that equivalent uh, for the for the Romans, and then the five javelins. Remember, they were really strict about making sure they had those five javelins, and they are to be thrown at the earliest opportunity. That's another important idea. Those javelins do you absolutely no good if you die with them, so be chucking those things quickly because everyone is a potential uh, casualty on the opposing team. Mm -hmm. The second line is your light infantry, and they are definitely armed with shields. Like uh, The shield is something you're going to see fairly common across most of of, uh, Roman tactics, and it's just a good idea. Like when you're dealing, again, with real weapons, a shield is a really good idea because it's something to put between you and the real weapon. I like shields in in Belagarth, too, or in physical wargaming, but of course it's less effective with a larger weapon or something along those lines. This is also where you're going to find javelin swords, but also your common missile weapons. Your archers, your slings, those are going to be kind of mixed into this second line of light infantry. And again, for us, this would also be uh, Florentiners. uh, So people who use two swords or or two smaller weapons, uh, they would probably fall into this line as well. If they're not skirmishing. Yeah, if you're not off skirmishing. Uh, That combination obviously was not as common in the ancient world because it didn't offer very much protection. And if you messed up, you were really in a bad position. Like the, the sword Super of the shield. easy to die. Yeah, the sword of the shield is a time-honored tradition because it gives you protection and offense. The spear is nice because it keeps them over there. Uh, you know, archery is, is kind of the same idea, but using two swords, it's kind of a cocky maneuver. And again, with what we do, the fact we get back up, you know, it, it doesn't matter as much. But as a, when, anytime I go out with two swords, that's when I'm usually rolling the dice the most. Like if I'm, if I'm mm-hmm. Florentining, those are either going to, it's, I'm either going to have my best round or my worst round when I'm Florentine. And you can't afford that when it's a real weapon. So that's why Florentine was never actually that big a style overall. Correct. But for the sake of what we do, this is either, either on the wings or in the second line is where Florentiners would be located. And then that rear line is going to be more heavy infantry and their job right then is to be resting and ready for action should the need arise. Uh, for the Romans, these guys were actually like chilling out. They were out, out either taking a knee in the back or, or actually reclining, trying to like make sure that they were as rested as possible should they need to be called up. This is the reserve. You know, if we're, if we're talking like a more of a Frederick idea, this is your reserve back here in this rear line. So the tactic that they used here is actually kind of cool. And again, this is a, a drill that I definitely want to do in the future because I think it's it's useful, even just the idea of it, even if you don't have the numbers to actually do this the way the Romans intended, just the idea of doing this drill is, is kind of a good idea. So you've got your, your, your unit set up, right? Heavy infantry in front, light infantry behind, reserve in the back. The lightly armed second line advances in front of the first line and skirmishes and also uh, is, is engaging in missile fire at this time. So they're moving out in front of, uh, of your heavy infantry and they're going out and, 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 and meeting the battle themselves. Uh, again, kind of skirmishing out there. And their idea here is to try to repulse the flow with superior numbers and ferocity. And if you can't, if you're unable to repulse, uh, or, or to, to, apparently I'm struggling with the word repulse today. If you're unable to repulse the foe with this initial combat, the light infantry then retire back behind the heavy infantry who then... Uh, carry on fighting. That rear infantry will only be engaged if a hole is is created uh, in in that front line. 
The other thing that the light infantry does is that the pursuit of broken enemy forces is left entirely to light infantry and cavalry. That's not heavy infantry's job. That's all, that's all the fleet of foot. They're the ones going out there chasing things down. Don't make me do that in my full kit armor, please. <laughs> uh, the closest equivalence I can think of Belagarth really doing this is, we've mentioned it before, but people like Paksha. Yeah. Who will go out and place the army, because that's a very valuable thing that the light infantry can do as well, is just like, okay, here's where the fight's going to happen. You are not leaving this spot while my people come up. Yep, because again, he'll he'll run out there, and again, he, he'll take shots that he can. Like, if Pakshaw sees you dropping your guard, or if you're not paying attention, he will kill you. But his primary focus is to make sure that you are rooted on the spot and focused while the rest of the Gelf come up, and, and they're the ones who have the heavy shields, and the pikes, and mm -hmm. the archery. And at that point, Pakshaw peels off and goes and plays his game somewhere else, and the the rest of the group engages. But yeah, that's that's kind of that same idea of your skirmishers who kind of go out in front. But the thing, I again, I really like about this is the idea that those skirmishers retire back into the line and then the heavy come up. You have this this unbroken chain of contact, uh, like a trade-off yeah. when, you're, when, you're, when your light leaves and your heavy engages. There's no break. Your enemy doesn't have a break in combat, whereas you do. You know, the light infantry get to fall back and take a break. Heavy infantry come in fresh. No, it's very smooth. It's, uh, I'm... I sometimes get bored with old Greek Roman tactics because it's usually march and shield wall hit. Right. But when you go in deeper, there there's a lot of subtleties to march and shield wall than hit. Mm -hmm. That uh, history doesn't always do the like history classes doesn't do the best job of conveying. Yeah, you have to go back and 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 read through several pages of Egedius, and then you find this this nice little gem. This is these are the little gems we look for, like an actual tactic that's written in these that's applicable to what we do. I, you know, this one's going in the pocket. I'm teaching this one. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the pursuit of the broken enemy forces is left entirely to light infantry and cavalry at that point. So that's when you send your turkey feathers, your pockshaws off to chase chase the enemy down while the, the heavy infantry regroups and prepares for uh, either the next engagement or to retire from the field. And again, I, I like this. I, I For most of my career, I would have found myself in the light infantry uh, section of this. And if there would have been more organization to the to the actual line fighting i would have participated in it more one of the reasons i didn't is i was like okay i'm i'm lightly armored and i don't want to go in there with these heavy hitters who have all this armor and all this heavy gear because i'm just not equipped for it and i don't feel like i'm going to be receiving the kind of support from the people around me that i would need to feel effective in that way and so i was constantly making myself into a flanker and i mean i was quick i'm not saying that that was a bad place for me like i, I you know i I definitely was one of the faster sprinters for a long time there, so I, yeah, it was not a bad role for me. But in the same token, if I could have depended on a bit more structure in the center of the field, I might have been more useful there. Well, and it's remarkable how quickly after I turned 30 that the uh, armored and heavy hitting suddenly became way more appealing to me. Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah, we... Yeah, your ability to just sprint for, for hours. Because it's not the one fight that matters. I can sprint for one fight, no problem. I can probably sprint for two or three fights, no problem. But then I need to go sit down. Yeah, I was going to say, it's five fights where it becomes a problem. Yeah, you could just sprint and sprint and sprint and sprint and sprint when I was younger, and I was it was wonderful. And now it's uh, it's a matter of... And again, I haven't trained to the same level either. Like, I've, I've let my training slide a little bit, as I'm sure we all have this year. But I, I don't... Th like, I, I won't ever be at the same place I was when I was 20. That's not possible. You know, age age does not work that way. I can still be in great shape, but I'm never going to be 20 again. And that's okay. There's a lot of things I do not miss about being 20. 
<laughs> no, no, also, no, 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 no. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the the idea of the flawless execution. This is what the, all of the Roman tactic was kind of building up to: is the execution of this tactic, this light infantry uh, supported by the heavy infantry, this 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 flawless trade-off of contact uh, and, and that 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 just that punch, that constant uh, aggression that was able to break down so many of Rome's foes in such a short order of time. Well, did you have any anything else to add on the on the idea of flawless execution, Thumbs? No, uh, I think it's time to jump to the next section, but I'm going to let you say what it's called, and then I'll pretend how I've, that I've always known how it's pronounced. Yeah, so the, the next section is going to be another Roman battle. We figured it was a, a good place to include such things, uh, a, a study of Roman tactics. So we're going to be studying today the Battle of Metaurus. is a battle in the Second Punic War, which we've covered a previous battle before in the Punic Wars. I really, really love this era of Roman history, mostly because I am super in love with Hannibal and the Carthaginians. Who, who isn't? Like, they're, they're a very fascinating culture that we don't know nearly enough about. They're the perfect combination of, like, strategically brilliant and giving sass to Rome in ways that I just, like, deeply respect on a fundamental level. <laughs> I can dig it. But... What's interesting is while I like knew that he existed, I knew almost nothing about Hannibal's brother, who is kind of the main star of this battle today. Indeed. We're, we're not going to go into nearly as much background this time around as we did before. Uh, for those of you who may have missed the episode, we spoke uh, a lot more about Hannibal and the background of the Second Punic War uh, back in episode 18. So if, uh, if that's rusty at all, uh, you can definitely go back and give that a re-listen. Or uh, if you haven't heard that one, uh, that will give you a lot more background information on what we're about to talk about here. But this takes place about 10 years after uh, Cani, which was the battle we covered back in episode 18. It's important to remember because Hannibal at this point has now been wandering around Italy for a decade, causing terror to Rome. He doesn't have all the people that he wants, but he's got more coming in with his brother here. Uh, and his father had also been a big enemy to Rome. His father's name was roughly translated to the Thunderbolt. Which you would love with your iconography. Oh, I, the other reason I love this family so much. Uh, so Rome was really scared of this son of the Thunderbolt, and now there might be a second son of the Thunderbolt coming over? Right, right. And so, like you were saying, uh, Hannibal didn't quite have the numbers to mount a full-on offensive of Rome uh, during a lot of this time, but he did definitely have the numbers to be keeping the Roman generals busy. And so that's that's kind of where our story uh, kicks off here, is after Hannibal has been making a nuisance of himself for quite some time. He also didn't get the support he was expecting, like he was expecting a lot more of the Italian city-states to kind of side with him against Rome. And as you mentioned before, while they didn't necessarily like Rome, that was the devil they knew. Well, and not just that, they might not have been happy about it, but Rome was also really, really rich. So if you had to be ruled by someone, you could do a lot worse than Rome because they had more, in some cases, more money coming in than they would have had if they had not been conquered by Rome. I suddenly get that uh, that scene from Life of Brian in my head where they're sitting there and they're complaining, what, the, what have the Romans ever done for us? 
Well, they gave us roads. Well, yeah, roads. But what, what besides roads? <laughs> well, they, the aqueduct. Well, yeah, the aqueduct. Yeah. Yeah. And they also gave us, you know. <laughs> that might be the ultimate description of the Rome's relation with its client states that I have ever heard. Like, good job, Python boys. Aside from roads and aqueducts and medical services and uh, protection, what has Rome ever done for us? Yeah, yeah, and so again, they were. Uh, some of them did. Some of them went over to the to the banner of Carthage, but not nearly as many as was as, as expected. And so this kind of shadow war had been waged for some time. Now, part of the reason this took so long was because Hasdrubal, on his way, uh, stopped over in order to kind of not only muster his army, but also had to train up some new elephants, like the the war elephants that the Carthaginians used. It took some time to make sure that they were effective in battle and, and could actually be uh, utilized in that way. So uh, that was a, a resource they definitely had to invest in, and it was one of the reasons it took so long for him to get there. I was going to say, also keep in mind, it takes about a year to get from Carthage to Rome the route they're taking. Right, right. So I uh, like that that uh, amount of time considered. All the rest of this was what was needed to make sure that the numbers were what they needed to be. The numbers that we're working with on the side of Carthage... You had Hasdrubal, Barca, and the army that he was working with was around 30,000 strong with 10 elephants. Now, again, 10 elephants was a lot. That's that's a lot of elephants in terms of like being on the battlefield, fighting an elephant. 10 is a lot of elephants. And the casualties ended up being fairly severe. We'll, we'll go into that at the end of the battle. I've been kind of uh, noticing that at the beginning of the battle, when I go over casualties, it can be a little, a little bit of a spoiler. So we'll go over that toward the end, I think. We should also mention before we go further that these numbers are the modern most likely guess. Um, a lot of ancient sources were wildly varied and the Romans were wonderfully inaccurate on, oh, you know, we killed an army of 100,000 people. They're like, there's no way you did that. <laughs> they, they didn't even have that size. of it. Their, their, their country wasn't that big. There's no way you did yeah. that. We, we know that they had 10 elephants, but the, like, 30,000, that, that, that is the most likely number in the current train of thought. Correct. Correct. Anytime you're dealing with, like, uh, like Thumbs enjoys doing these more ancient battles because they can be, there's, there's a lot of fun to them, and there's a lot of romance to them for certain. One of the reasons I enjoy doing uh, things from, for instance, like World War II or Vietnam is because the numbers and the data that we have on those battles is so much more reliable. Um, than what we're, we're dealing with back then. Oh yeah, we can get it down to a person as opposed to the, uh, as opposed to you know, my bread and butter where I'm not good at details anyways. So they're like, I don't know, fifty to a hundred thousand people. And I'm like, yep, yeah, that sounds great. There were also far less elephants used in World War II, so there's that trade-off. <laughs> there's that. Maybe there that's is that trade-off. <laughs> no elephants. So yeah, uh, we'll get to the casualties at the end. The Roman Republic, on the other hand, because it was still a republic at this point. Uh, was kind of commanded by Marcus Livius, Gaius Claudius Nero. These are the two big names that we're going to be talking about in this story. Uh, Lucius Porcius also played a role, and then Lucinius did as well. Now, Gaius Claudius Nero is of no relation to the, the later emperor under the name of Nero. It's, it's kind of like Smith, just another name. You have to remember, Romans seem to only have about 15 to 20 names. Well, they were royal families. For sure. And so you wanted to be like, it was, it was like, oh, it's an ancient name. Oh, very cool. Like, there are three different Scipios over the course of the Punic Wars. So... That's a good point. There's a lot of repeat happening here. Yep. 
Yep. And so, and they were working with an army of about a strength of 37,000 when the battle was joined. And we'll get into those casualties again when this is over. And now this battle took place uh, in 207 BCE near the Mataro River in Italy. And, uh, and like we said before, Hasdrubal was coming in order to uh, reinforce his brother and to bring him aid. He'd been here for a decade at this point. He definitely could use a breather. Now, if, if you recall back from that episode 18, when we talked about Hannibal crossing the Alps, it was not a fun time. Not only did he have to deal with the adverse weather conditions that the Alps always provide, no matter the season, but there were also a lot of Gauls that were in the Alps that were uh, eager to attack the, the, the army that was passing through. Now, of course, the passage was still difficult for Hasdrubal because it was still the Alps, but he didn't have the same issue with the Gallic tribes. Hannibal had won their respect. They actually kind of feared Hannibal. And so when Hasdrubal came by, instead of fighting with him, a number of them actually joined up with his army. Again, those numbers are kind of varied. I know you you had said an estimate before we kind of got going with the... Uh with like the show it wasn't thousand, many two thousand people yeah it was a it is a not insignificant force but on the scale of ancient armies it it wasn't you know doubling his army or anything by any stretch of the imagination right right more bodies is more bodies but it was it was not a, a game-changing number of bodies so this might be a weird thing to say when we're talking about how this was much easier for him than it was for his brother, but I always kind of feel for Hasdrubal as being the second person to do the most important and impressive military maneuver of all time up to this point. <laughs> well, he's not nearly spoken about in the same way because of it, oh, for yeah. sure. Hannibal, we know, like, even before I really knew what the Punic Wars were, I knew who Hannibal was. Man, I... I barely know anything about Hasdrubal, and this is, as I have mentioned, my bread and butter. Yeah. So, again, the, the first person to cross the Alps, that was a pretty big deal. The second person, it was like, uh, you know. It's still impressive. Sure. Sure. I mean, it, it, like, to give another turn of phrase, I'm sure the uh, people who are astro astronomically inclined will be angry at this analogy, but we all know the name of Boz Aldrin. Who is the, the name of the second person to set foot on the moon? I'll wait. I can almost always <laughs> tell you that Jesus Christ but it's harder to come up with isn't it I was it? reading his name today oh you're mean I'm telling you but that's that's what we're dealing with here too Hannibal Hasdrubal both awesome dudes both with, with impressive military records both with a, a whole lot of glory to their name but uh, one of them did it first just saying well, thumbs is going to go look now. I can see the the, the I am screen looking it up. glowing on the other side of the <laughs> of the connection there. <laughs> Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong, of course. Oh my God, I know that. I was talking about him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm good. We're good. See, I didn't even remember the first name, so that that's on me. I, <laughs> that shows how much I know. <laughs> I couldn't remember it's Hannibal. It's like 11:30 at night, guys. Like, we're sorry. It was Bob, right? Bob was the first one to cross the Alps, right? That was yes. that was Bob Barca. <laughs> Anyways, yes, the price anyways. is right, guy. Uh, so uh, it was it was significantly easier, even though it wasn't easy. Uh, and he, he he won a few recruits in the process. So at this time, Claudius Nero was kind of playing a prolonged game of cat and mouse with Hannibal, and had been for quite some time. Again, Hannibal had a significant force and could do quite a bit of damage in the countryside, but wasn't quite willing to bring that force to bear against a Roman force when he didn't know when his reinforcements were going to be arriving. Uh, you know, you don't want to just bleed your troops away. Rome has already proven in this 
war, its insane ability to just pull up a new army out of nowhere. It's part of the reason why Rome is so effective throughout history. Hannibal doesn't have that second army. Correct. Rome has proven it can lose like 15 times. Hannibal can lose once at this yep. point. Yep, and so the, the stakes are a lot higher. Uh, and so this, this cat and mouse game has been kind of going on while Marcus Livius um, is kind of going and cautiously feeding out Hasdrubal. He's yielding a lot of ground, uh, kind of kind of getting a feel for the army that he's against, kind of getting a feel for the commander that he's going to be going up against. And eventually Han- or Hasdrubal crosses the Mataris River. So at this point, Hasdrubal sends messengers to Hannibal. Uh, seeking to join up forces, basically like, where are you at? I've got uh, you know this big army with me. Let's go crush Rome together sort of thing. But these messengers are intercepted by Claudius Nero. Now, Claudius Nero rightly feared what this would do. Again, Hannibal was a terror with the army that he had. But with these numbers that were coming in, he was effectively going to double his forces, which was not uh, uh, an army that Rome could deal with. If these armies had met up, it would have changed the course of history. How far? We can't say, obviously. But we, we might have been discussing the Carthaginian Empire instead of the Roman Empire in such detail. Yeah, this is how big this like would be for Rome, and they were smart enough to be aware of this. Yeah. So Claudius Nero you know, gets these messengers. He understands what's at stake here if these brothers are able to meet up. And so he, he doesn't march the whole army. Because again, like if he, if he leaves with his whole army, Hannibal's going to know what's up, and he's going to maneuver and could potentially get there quicker. So he only leaves with 7,000 troops, but they leave and they go and they just march straight to the other location. Part of the reason that they were able to do this was because they left all of their extra gear behind. Like the normal things that a Roman legionary would carry, you know, the whole camp on their back, basically all of their, their mess kit, all of that sort of thing. They leave that behind and they just go with their weaponry and their armor. And along the way, they're picking up a few more reinforcements, but the villages have been notified to have food and, that, and, and drink prepared so they can, can just kind of stop off, rest, and then just keep going without having to worry about that extra weight. And so this is one of the reasons why this, this upset was possible. Sorry, I was going to say, he's also picking up recruits. Yep, yep. Uh, he's also picking up recruits as he goes. So these 7,000 troops uh, arrive during the night and... Hasdrubal notices something amiss the next day. Not only do, you know, do people kind of report that there were horns going off inside the Roman camp that, you know, indicated that somebody fairly high ranking had arrived, but also the next day when everybody's kind of looking at each other across the field of battle, there seems to be considerably more troops on the other side. Well, maybe you know, even, about 7,000 more. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe 30% more troops. And so Hasdrubal says, no, I don't, I don't want to play. This, uh, we're going to try this again. And so he goes to withdraw back into Gaul. However, they reach the banks of the Meditaris River and his guides abandon him. Now, remember, we've talked before, and I know we touched on this a lot when we were talking uh, back in Sun Tzu, but fording rivers is a big deal, especially when you're dealing with supply wagons and everything like that, like making sure that you're crossing a river at a safe place. This is something we just don't have to worry about in the modern age. Like we have bridges everywhere. Most of us have never had to ford a stream. We wouldn't even know how to begin looking for a good spot to ford a stream. And so when these guides ditch him here, it's not good. This is not good. And he's unable to cross. So morning comes and reluctantly he has to join battle. So at this point, Hasdrubal sets his right flank against the river. With, with This is where he puts his cavalry as well. And then he puts his left flank against inaccessible hilly terrain. 
And uh, this is this is a good setup. Again, from everything we've read in other uh, forms of military science, you can tell that this is actually a pretty good setup. He's got he can't really be flanked on the left or the right because he's got impassable terrain on both sides. So he's narrowed the battlefield. That's not a bad idea. Again, Hasdrubal wasn't dumb. He wasn't a bad commander. No, he's a great military commander. He's just stuck in a really bad position right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, got that that inaccessible heli train up on the left. And up in there, that's where they've put the Gauls, because the night before, the Gauls got not necessarily, we can't necessarily say to a man, but large enough to have been noted by history, drunk. And this next morning, they are less than useful in their, in their uh, and, and Hasdrubal recognizes this and puts the hungover Gauls up on the hill <laughs> where they can be away from everybody else. Uh, the elephants, of, of course, are up front. And like I said, the Cav or on that right flank next to the river. Uh, we should also say about the Gauls real quick, it's not just that they were drunk. Honestly, putting a disorganized group like the Gauls somewhere like a bunch of ravines and hills, that is about the best place you could put those guys. True. True. They they, they wouldn't have drilled with the rest of the... All of the Carthaginian forces were multi-ethnic. That was something that was fairly common, especially of Carthaginian armies at this time, is that they were drawn from all sorts of different places. So they already had a lot of diversity in their army, so but not necessarily in the way they fought. They were still being drilled together to fight kind of in the same way, whereas these Gauls hadn't necessarily been drilled in, 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 to the same extent. Uh, so yeah, putting them over here, not just because they were hungover, but also as a, a fairly sound tactical decision for other reasons. So the Romans line up opposite. Of course, they, they stack their superior cav against the Carthaginian cav, but otherwise that line is right there. And then... They come to battle. So in the initial phases of the battle, the Roman cavalry uh, overpowered the Carthaginian counterparts fairly easily, but the Carthaginian center and left flank hold because, again, their center is quite good and their left flank is, is uh, rooted in some ravines over there. And of course, those elephants that were in the Carthaginian center are just wreaking havoc in Roman lines, causing confusion and casualties left and right. That's, again, drunken war elephants is, is something... Not, none of us are going to face most likely and certainly don't want to. <laughs> it's Until bad. black powder comes up, there's not really a great counter to elephants, if we're being honest. Yeah, they, they've got thick hides. They're very strong. They can move very quickly. And if they're trained to kill, they're, they're good at it. There is, of course, the other downside of they're trained to kill. They're not always the pickiest about what they kill. That is true. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. But yeah, so so but right now they are are sowing just absolute uh, chaos in the Roman lines. So on the right flank you've got Claudius Nero, and he's trying to break through those ravines to try to get up at those Gauls, but he's not having much luck. Like he he can't get through the the terrain is basically impassable, and so instead of trying to futilely get up there, decides to take that flank, swing around the back of the Roman lines over to the Roman left and smack in hard. And again, this side was already foundering. The cav had broke, and so the, the flank was already starting to collapse. And so when this, this reinforcement come up, again, fresh troops that are, have been raring for battle and have basically not seen combat all day come in and just slam in, this is kind of one of the things that breaks the, the camel's back. And as Thumb said, around this time, the elephants have gotten confused. They are starting to become as much of a, a liability to their own lines as they are to the Roman lines, which again, elephants aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily discriminate <laughs> between who's in front of them. They just kind of go. So it proves to be too much. The Carthaginians are overwhelmed. They falter and they break. 
uh, and they begin to retreat, except for Hasdrubal. He decides to charge to a glorious death, which he gets. The Romans thought this was pretty great because the Romans were very determined to show how great their enemies were because it made the Romans all the much more impressive when, you know, the Romans won against their enemies. Sure. Uh, some other scholars have been a little less impressed because Hadstrabal, even without his full-sized army, if he got a couple of thousand people together still, the amount of damage he could do to Rome and the amount that he could still help his brother there would have been amazing. But he decided that he needed to be, I guess, honorable? Or maybe just buying some of his other people time and uh, just went right for it. Yep. And while the Romans may have spoken about him in, in exaggerated terms in order to make themselves look good, that didn't necessarily mean that they respected him because uh, reports say that he did have his head removed and tossed into his brother's camp by Claudius Nero. <laughs> there, there's a definite thing of the Romans where they're not always claiming the moral high ground when they're saying how impressive it was they beat these people because... Uh, that makes it okay, then, that they did these things, like, to their minds sometimes. Right, right, right. And so by the end of this, the Romans had lost somewhere between two and 8,000 people. Again, uh, the numbers are kind of if, uh, iffy because of the distance that it's been in history. But the Carthaginians had around 10,000 killed. So I take that as a third of their force was killed. 5,400, roughly, were captured. Six of the elephants were killed and four of the elephants were captured. Now, I do want to note that those six elephants killed were not killed by Romans. They were killed by their drivers because they couldn't control them. So I think that yeah. that is something to know. Again, the, the fearsome power of the elephant is even with all these other casualties, the Romans still didn't manage to bring down an elephant on their own. It had to be the driver that did it. I don't think they ever really came up with a great solution to elephants. I'm not sure if there, again, until uh, black powder, I'm not sure if there is a great solution to elephants. It's just kind of an OP. Yeah, like ballistas maybe, but your aim better be real good with that. Uh... Yeah, because you're, you're going at a moving target that is armored usually too. You're not just talking about a naked elephant running around out there. They're also usually armored as well. I have to admit, when I was playing Age of Empires as a kid, I would often lose because I refused to do anything but war elephants because they were too cool. War elephants are too cool, though. I mean, when you finally got a good <laughs> army up, though, like if you find if you did get your war elephant army going, though, who could stand in front of you? Who could who could uh, resist you? Yeah, no, they were like, but you could make some horses, and I'm like, but I could make elephants instead. All the elephants, yes, elephants in cannon towers. I was all about the cannon tower creep. That was my my way. I own this now. Oh, now I own this. And now I own this. Anyone who's ever watched me play Age of Empires will never understand why I'm on a podcast that is talking about <laughs> tactics. It really does boggle the mind. But that was like what? That was like 10, 20 years ago. It's been a minute. It's been a, you yeah, learned yeah, a thing no, or two since recent. then. <laughs> oh. so. so yeah, again, like we said, this was a this was a big deal. This was a, a very important battle that could very well have changed the course of history. Obviously, Hasdrubal and his forces were not able to meet up with Hannibal. Hannibal did eventually have to withdraw from the peninsula, and we uh, Rome rose to its ascendancy. Yeah, this is really the battle that proved that Hannibal can't win, and it was just a matter of what losing was going to look like, if we're honest about it. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. 
So, uh, and and in this battle, of course, we see the that Roman discipline playing out. They were using that uh, this 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 tactic that would become uh, textbook, uh, literally textbook by the time of Vegetius, uh, back at this time, using their numbers to their full advantage. And and within this discipline, within this ability to oppress the enemy and think on your feet and have an organized group, uh, they were able to to overcome uh, somebody who they feared. And, and very rightly so. Again, these sons of the thunderbolt, as, as some said, uh, were, were not pushovers. But today we've gone over what is required for diligent preparation. What, you know, what, that, what that looks like for your so-called prefect of the workmen, and what that looks like in terms of demarcation so you can tell who the other people are on the field with you, and the drills one might need to do to become where one needs to be to be diligent in one's preparation. And after this, we look at what comes from that which is the flawless execution and what that when you're drawing up in a line of order in for battle and how to organize your lines in a roman fashion to do this really interesting tactic that we had talked about and then kind of how these these lessons played out at the battle of metarsis was there anything else that you had for for this episode thumbs i think that about covers everything yeah and if you've if you've gotten to the end of this and you're like man i just i have not had nearly enough art of war gaming in my life uh, we've got an Instagram and a Facebook where I am getting better at uh, posting the stuff. By the time this comes out, I should be back on the, the horse, as it were, uh, posting regularly uh, little memes and, and uh, factoids about uh, the, the time period that we're dealing with. Uh, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and this is, you can, any, any sort of critique, feedback, um, uh, player profiles would be awesome. I'm, I'm definitely out of those at this point. So uh, player profiles would be great. Uh, and then we've also got our sister shows over on the Earworm Network if you're looking for more listening, too. Yeah, you can check out uh, me and my buddy Tyler over on General Nerdery, where we talk about generally being nerdery. And Tyler and my friend Danny talking uh, about horror movies over on Fried Squirms. Indeed. Well, well, I think for, for this episode, we've, we've talked quite enough. And uh, for this week, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. Signing off.